And I really remember the first, you know, the way that we used to teach or they used to teach, they would stand up in the boat and yell at you to like pull and lean. And, you know, I remember being in tears, you know, just angry that they were yelling at me. And finally, one day I leaned against the rope like a real pro. And I was like, oh, wow, that was easy. And literally I had that aha moment that if you lean against the rope and you cross the wake on edge, that is actually easier than like tiptoeing through the tulips. And I immediately, you know, started beating out, you know, all the people around us at that, uh, that point. Welcome back to the Water Ski Podcast, episode 32. Coming to you a little late uh, due to my travel back to Italy, where I relocated after 13 years in the United States. So excited to get over and done with these two weeks of self-isolation and then get back on the water when that will be considered safe here. Episode 32 is with Jennifer Lapointe. This episode was recorded at the end of March during the midst of the corona pandemic, which unfortunately is still with us, but it had really hit strong in Europe and it was starting to hit strong in the United States as well. Uh, so we did this over Skype. It started raining while I was recording on my end outside, so you will hear a little bit of rain in the background, although it shouldn't be too much. But uh, what an interview. I mean, this is one of the best years of all time who decided to take an hour of her time to share her story and share some of the things she has done while she was a skier and nowadays to promote and grow the sport of water skiing. Some of which I was more familiar with, like the Compete app that will be launched soon. And some of that I was a little less aware, but I heard about it, such as the Women of Water Ski Tour. So a super complete, passionate person about water skiing and I'm so stoked to get this interview out. Uh, took a month and a half but finally it's out there for everyone to enjoy. Thanks again for supporting the podcast, for sharing about it with friends. I hope you're safe and I will get in touch with you on Saturday for a little bonus episode to excuse my delay with this one. Enjoy. Well, Jennifer, first of all, thank you so much for accepting to be interviewed for the Waterski Podcast. Glad to see you. Uh, of course, this is a bit of a remote situation. That's how life is nowadays. But uh, glad to have you here. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we're going to get warmed up a little bit like we do in skiing with a bit of longer rope lengths uh, by just talking about how you got into skiing. When did you start? What were your first experiences? So I actually learned to water ski on the Ohio River. You know, the state of West Virginia and the state of Ohio are separated by the Ohio River. Uh, Even though I'm from West Virginia, I did grow up skiing in southern Ohio. And we learned to water ski, and we had nothing better to do all day but ski 10 miles one way and 10 miles back. Uh, Back in, you know, in in the 70s, you know, you wouldn't see another boat for miles. And we were fortunate enough that there, you know, there was a boat and ski club there that gave us information about slalom courses and magazines. And so we, not only did we learn how to ski, but we also sort of had a, the 
the knowledge that there was something beyond just doing what we were doing. Right. Oh, that's awesome. That's that's a long stretch of free skiing, ten miles. <laughs> it was. It was. So how long, how long did you ski before you were exposed to the slalom course? Well, really, right right away. I mean, some people in the sport might remember Mike Meek. Uh, he's been around and done a lot of coaching on the uh, some of the teams and stuff. But he's my cousin. And they had a water ski course there, and we would put them up. Our, our ski club would actually put up slalom courses and a jump for a ski tournament in, in the Ohio River in a bend. And we might go to sleep in our tents overnight and come back the next morning, and a barge would have, like, made a wrong turn and, like, wiped out the whole thing. And believe it or not, some of our buoys were made out of bleach jugs at the time. Right, right. Yeah, it's like classic uh, river water skiing, right? Like, trying to survive, coming, like, figuring out a way. Where did the course go you know so yeah that's cool that's cool what were you what are your early memories did you remember enjoying skiing a lot was it like a family more of a family thing yeah so my dad was always into motorsports motorcycles cars boats and we had a boat and we had a cabin that was like 30 minutes from our hometown and we would literally move to this one room cabin and my dad would commute back and forth to work and my brother and i you know as soon as we were old enough to drive boats we we would just take off all day water skiing because we had nothing better to do. And, you know, all of our, we had quite a, a group of little friends that also did it, you know, in that same area. Um, so we would just, that's how we, that's really how we, how we got started. We, we, we moved every summer till I was, you know, basically old enough to drive a car. We were in, wanted to do other fun things. We lived at that river cabin um, water skiing. Wow. That's great. That's great. Tell me, like, this is something I, I tend to ask, but I'd be curious to hear your take. Um, do you remember your first tournament, your very first water ski tournament? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sad memories. Uh, so I skied against my cousin, and we both got, like, a half a buoy or no buoy, like, six times. And every time it was a real struggle for me to even get out of the water. So I, I finally just said, okay, she can win. I don't want to try to get up anymore. So I was about six years old. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah, that's so you were thrown into competition early on. Very early. Okay. Okay. And I'm assuming you persisted, right? Yeah. So what's interesting is that my we had a water ski um, school that was close by the Meek Ski School. And so we would live at ski school, ski all day. And I actually uh, excelled in trick skiing, believe it or not. And my first national championship, I think I was about 11 years old in tricks. And it was at Callaway Gardens, of all places. And Nationals uh, at Callaway? No yeah, way. Yeah, we had the Nationals at Callaway, and I was a trick skier. That was my first Nationals. And then the next year, I, I qualified in slalom skiing. And I, you know, I was basically six foot tall, as I am today, um, when I was 15, year old, 15 years old. So I grew really tall really quickly. So everybody knew I was going to be a great slalom skier. Or, you know, I had the, 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 the body style at that time to be a great psalm skier. And I really remember the first, you know, the way that we used to teach or they used to teach. They would stand up in the boat and yell at you to, like, pull and lean. And, you know, I remember being in tears, you know, just angry that they were yelling at me. And finally, one day, I leaned against the rope like a real pro. And I was like, oh, wow, that was easy. And literally I had that aha moment that if you lean against the rope and you cross the wake on edge, that it's actually easier than like tiptoeing through the tulips. And I immediately, you know, started beating out, you know, all the people around us at that, uh, that point. And then I went on to be the, um, 
the national champion in um, slalom and girl slalom three times in a row. And something people might not know about me, I was an overall skier. And, you know, Sherry Sloan was a world record holder, world champion. And one of my claims to fame is that I beat her in jump at the national championships are our, our last year in girls three. And I wasn't the overall champion for girls three my last year. Isn't it funny how that works? Like we have those memories, like I interviewed Mano a few weeks ago and she said that she remembers that at Junior Worlds she beat Jacinta Carroll in jump. You know, it happened once, you know, so it's funny how yeah. we, we remember those very clearly. And interesting because I think what you said about your slalom progression is so relatable to a lot of skiers that listen to this. That moment, even if you know that if you're edging and everyone tells you it's going to be safer and more fun, it's a big hump, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it's it's literally terrifying because you're you know you're actually going skiers are going what 65 70 miles an hour for a split second. You know, and if you're a kid, it's really really scary. I mean, they literally had to push me off the cliff and by my own determination and I just said, "Okay, darn it. I'll show you that this doesn't work." And it did work. And um, you know, it just really changed my life forever. I mean, I from the I can remember that very distinctly and now I'm, you know, been I'm 56 years old and I'm still skiing because I learned how to do that, you know? Yeah, you're still edging through the wakes. <laughs> yeah. I realized it was actually easier than trying to do it, you know, tiptoe to the tulips. It's hard to convince people of that, but... Yeah, yeah. And it takes a bit of courage, obviously a lot of trust in the in the people that are trying to help your skiing and, and then obviously trying to replicate it once you feel it that first time. Um, I'd be curious to hear, when did you... And I think this is, is so fascinating. It changes for everyone. But when did it click on you that you were actually good at what you were doing? Uh, you know, back in that time in the sport, you know, uh, the, in Ohio, Southern Ohio had a very uh, complex uh, ski season. We would go to 10 tournaments a summer. We would camp out with our family. And every time you, most everybody was a three-event skier. So, and they gave big trophies. So, we would come home every week with like, my brother competed as well. So we would have our whole backseat full of like eight trophies. We would win something in every event and probably something in overall. And so it was very enticing, you know, to be in the sport at that time. And I think that was a moment where you're like, yeah, we're pretty good because they would give you these big things that acknowledged how well you did. Um, so I guess maybe, you know, back at that, that time. That's cool. That's really cool. And I think it, it, it proves the importance of trophies, right? Uh, I think if we do get into that moment where we think, okay, I'm, I'm pretty good at this, like I can actually pursue it, then the, the people are going to be more likely to, you know, go to more tournaments and stay in the sport for longer, get, get friends into it. Yeah, there was a big change in, in the sport because it used to be that everybody did three events and they gave trophies and you were actually competing. This is before three events slalom tournaments where you try to improve your score like that just was not a thing and it changed uh you know probably when i was in college it started to become a sport of specialists and uh even my dad who was a boat driver he drove the national championships you know he kind of got out of even driving the boat because he would say you know at the end of the day there was nobody there to hand him a beer and have fun and, and hang out because everybody was just coming to get their three slalom rides and leaving, you know, it's sort of the, the family atmosphere and the fun of competing on, for everyday competitions went, you know, kind of went away. 
Do you recall or, or maybe your own opinion as of what drove that change from more like, you know, competing no matter the level, the, the location to more like ranking list scores performances? Well, uh, one thing that really negatively affected the sport in general, like everybody's too young, but too young to remember this kind of stuff. But even today with like dramatic economic things going on, there was an oil embargo back in that day. And a lot of people who water skied in the 70s, you know, the economy fell apart and people could just not afford to go boating and skiing. So it really affected how many people were in the sport, you know, in that late 70s, 80s, early 80s, because of the economic things and the gas prices and things that happened. So that kind of slowed it down a little bit. But um, one thing people don't realize that, you know, world championships back in that time, you could only go if you were on the team. Um, so if you were one of the best athletes in, you know, in one discipline, there was no way to go to the world championships. And specifically, um, I guess in, in my life, there's a lot of rules with my name, you know, in the byline of, of, of something that happened that we needed to change the rules. But Jeff Rogers was the first skier to ever run, man to run 39, and I ran 38 for the first time for women at Lake Holly in Virginia, the same weekend as the World Championships. And at that moment, it was like, okay, here's two of the best athletes that just did the best run ever in the sport, but they're not at the Worlds. So they changed the rule after that that people could be um, get into the World Championship as a specialist. So something about you know letting people specialize. Uh, changed, you know, how we looked at the sport. And in addition to that, they, the, when they first started the pro tour, uh, Rob Shirley, uh, probably in 1983, he, with Mastercraft and Coors Light, they only had, uh, men's slalom, women's slalom and men's jump. And so they started to promote specialism through, you know, trying to make a short, entertaining show for the audience. And so then it made sense for people to start focusing on, you know, being really good in the discipline that was making all the money. Interesting. Very interesting. So part of it was, you know, the world's allowing in what we now call, I guess, independent skiers. And also the pro tour starting with like, you know, men and women's slalom and men's jump. Yeah. I can see how that probably drove a lot of people, maybe such as yourself, to maybe say, okay, like now it, I, I'm slalom is my best event. There are venues where I can compete in slalom. Uh, my achievements can bring me to those tournaments. That's what I'm going to focus on. Yeah, and in, in my case, I actually played lots of different sports, and I went on to play basketball at Georgia Tech. And so when I first uh, was, you know, graduating from from high school. There really wasn't a pro tour and, you know, there was a few pro tournaments here and there. So I chose to take the basketball scholarship, uh, put my skiing kind of in the summer on the side and focus full time on basketball, which was going to pay for my education. And then my second year in school, they started this pro tour and um, they only had women's slalom. And when I was at Georgia Tech on the ski team, you know, we skied on Lake Lanier. I don't know if anybody remembers those, uh, those lakes, but they're huge lakes. So if I was trying to train with the Georgia tech team, you know, boats would be going in circles. And I decided that it probably wasn't a good idea to get injured jumping, uh, you know, and not be able to play basketball, but also not to be able to slalom ski because that's where the, you know, the world of professional water skiing was going was women's slalom at that point. It was several years before they even added women's jumping. 
Okay, okay. And so it sounds like even though you went the basketball route, you still were passionate about slaloming and, and doing that. And I also saw elsewhere that you went to the University of Central Florida. Were you a collegiate skier there? Yeah, so what, what basically happened, I went to play basketball at Georgia Tech, and then what happens in basketball, they usually want you to play basketball all summer, so it was difficult to get the coaches to let me ski instead of play basketball. And then the pro tour... Uh, only had four stops, but the first one was in April. So that was going to require me to be training somehow to be ready for that event in Georgia. And, you know, it's really not that warm. Um, so I had to try to figure out how can I, you know, play basketball and still take off on this water ski tour. And then I guess I will loop in the, the crystal point story here because, um, I had met him. He, you know, Chris, when I was the national champion women's ski, you know, women's uh, girls champion skier, he came up to me and said, you know, how great I'd skied and everything. So I remember meeting him and thinking like Michael Jordan had just spoken to me. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, project a story forward. I was invited by Cindy Benzel to the um, all-star tournament, which was one of the only big tournaments in Florida. And I met him and he had just developed his own ski brand, which was called Mastercraft Skis at the time. And he wanted me to be like the female headliner for his ski company. So it was going to be Bob LaPointe, Chris LaPointe, Lucky Low and myself as their main team. And it gave me an opportunity to be, um, you know, coached by him and have skis built by him. And within four months, I broke my first world record. Um, and at that point, I'm a junior in college and it's okay, we're going to ski professional. Can I take advantage of these sponsorships? You know, if I'm not skiing and I had to really choose. So I chose to stop playing basketball. Once I could see that the, the pro tour was going to take off, I mean, back then it was on ESPN primetime. So it was an exciting and enticing future, whereas basketball after you know my senior year, I would have been done and maybe I would have been injured playing basketball and not been able to ski. So I transitioned. And at that time, University of Central Florida had a team and I skied on a full scholarship for University of Central Florida and we, I skied there two years, and uh, we, our team, I think our team maybe finished second. Nice, nice. Was it so? If, the way you explained it, uh, that your transition from basketball and water skiing to full time water skiing make it seems sounds very logical, right? So you're becoming better skier. You were on this new ski world record. Okay, see, uh, pro tour starting seems like a good, you know, reason to commit full time. But I'd be curious, like emotionally, was it tough to leave basketball behind? Was it something? Was it a sport that you enjoyed? How was that? You know, it was, and I really uh, owe a lot of this to my brother because he and I both competed, and he told me one day, which brings tears to my eyes. Actually, he said, "You know, I wish I was you. You have the opportunity to be a pro." and you're just pissing away. And it made me realize that, you know, I had been blessed with this talent and this opportunity and that I was like messing around still trying to be good at everything and that I needed to choose. Interesting, interesting. Um, all right, so we're getting into the Pro Tour. So you started the Pro Tour as a world champion. Sorry, as a world record holder. World record holder. I had tied the world record, yeah. Nice. So well, the first one was a tie, it was four at 38 off. Mm -hmm. They, who, who did you tie? Who, who had it uh, at the time? Cindy, Cindy Todd had it, 
And uh, interesting story about her for, so I was kind of skiing on the world record at the time, but I, my dad had spent all his money, you know, taking us to local tournaments, really didn't have the money to send me down to uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana to the tournament of, I think it was called tournament of champions or something in, in Louisiana. And they had $25,000 on the record uh, at that time. And she broke the record and got that check. So those are fun times. So anyway, I tied that record. So that was the 85 record. Yeah. What about 87? So I continued to ski. You know, Chris and Bob uh, coached me, you know, built all my skis, you know, kind of forever. And um, he skied. It was at Fort Worth, Texas. And it was, you know, wasn't really a perfect um, ski lake or perfect conditions. But it was kind of cool because it was on a big, had a big bank. And so you, at that time, you might have had 6,000. It felt like 10,000 people sitting on the beach, almost looking like a stadium. And, uh, you know, sometimes when you set records, they're so easy when you do it that you're like, well, why did I do that all the time? So, you know, just in the zone. But I think a, a kind of an interesting story about that is I was coming in at 38 off and I could smell popcorn being cooked on the beach. And I thought to myself, as I was out there, pulled out for the gates, wow, when I'm done, I need to get some of that popcorn that they're cooking on the beach. And then I came in and ran five. <laughs> so I think that, uh, you know, I was just so much in the zone that day that I could hear, smell. I was just completely aware of like everything going on. Isn't it, it funny was, how sometimes yeah. we have those thoughts or like, you know, something completely unrelated, but that maybe gets us away from the nerves or gets us away yeah, from... I think maybe I was just so relaxed that, you know, I was relaxed enough to think about what I could smell. And I also, even to this day when I'm, I'm competing, <clears throat> you know, different sports psychologists have taught, you know, taught me this, that you, if you can bring all of your senses to the table, smell, hearing. So I always try to take a moment and like, what is going on here to just make sure that all of myself is coming to the table to compete. You know, because if you don't hear what's going on and you don't smell it and you don't see it and you don't taste it, you're, you know, not completely focused. Wow. That's well, as you know, I'm, you know, I'm in the field. I'm sports psychology. Oh, um, so why, why don't we touch on that? Like it sounds like you had work with some professionals, anything on top of like, you know, full awareness uh, during performance, anything that you want to share about your experience with, you know, working with a sports psychologist? Well, I think it's, you know, I think it's really important. And, uh, you know, one thing they taught me at that time was visualization and trying to create patterns and routines that remind you of, you know, when you win, what happened, you know, and I love the movie Wimbledon. It's actually my favorite movie because I really feel like it, it, it shows what really happens on a pro tour, even though it's tennis, it's like and the way they, you know, they are talking about which leg they put in their pants first or what suit they wear first. I mean, I think the more patterning that you can do, the, the more things you can do that remind you of when you win can put you in the moon, just like, you know, you break your handle or your binding right before you go can like wreck your whole world, you know? Yeah. No, that's interesting. Just to move that, that piece a little bit for, forward while we're talking about it, you know, I, I was injured and, um, Chris and I, since I was injured, uh, Chris and I would have serious battles in the boat where he'd be like, just turn two at 38, which is where I got injured. And I'm like, I can't, like, I'm not in a skiing position to turn. And he's like, no, you are. And like, we would just have really big fights. A lot of people have seen these, these fights in the boat. And I'm like, okay, well, may, if you think I should be able to turn and I think I can't, then maybe there's something I can't see that's invisible. That's keeping me, you know, from 
going through that moment where I had gotten injured. So I went to a hypnotist and um, I said, hey, you know, I, I want to try this out. I don't think that that's even bothering me. It was like 20 years ago. This is, cannot be bothering me. And, you know, I just, but I wanted to see if there's subconsciously, I was like, I have a fear of getting injured again, even though I don't think I do. And so the first thing he, he said was, okay, well, Jen, you know, tell me what happened. And I immediately burst into tears and was sobbing. And I'm like, wow, I didn't even know that it was still bothering me all these years later. And I really do think that those, you know, going through that hypnotism and like what he told me at the time is that I was still skiing, like I was reliving the accident, like I was in the accident and I had to detach from it and kind of like see it from the spectator's perspective in the boat and like not be in the accident all the time. It was interesting. I thought it really helped me. No, that's good. That's good. And I think if anything, it remarks the importance of the mind in any sport, in any performance, but especially in a sport like water skiing, where it's fast-paced, very little chance for errors. Actually, if you if you do a big enough one, you don't get to go anymore. Um, so no, thank you, thank you for sharing these. You know, I, I didn't know you had, you had experience with sports psychologists. So, okay, so we said 87, five at 38, smelling a bit of popcorn on the pullout, um, and then your third one came in 96. Yes. <laughs> it was a long, long, long way ago. As I said, when you break a record, you know, the day that you do it, it's like, it's a piece of cake. And so you think, well, I should do that every single tournament. And then it can be like 10 years before you do it again. And you can't figure out where it goes. Um, but equipment, I think equipment, um, you know, impacts that you lose your tune up, um, Mental things happen in your world. I don't know what what, what happened, where it went. Uh, maybe a lot of other people got really good. Um, you know, I'm not sure why it took so long to to get back there again, but but I was glad I did. Well, that, and that's that's kind of what I want to highlight because to me it's extremely remarkable. I mean, I don't know of a lot of skiers that can claim. You know, there's skiers that had world records, but not a lot of skiers that had. You know, they were able to get one again years down the road. So give me the context. Uh, what happened, do you think, that allowed you to break the world record? Or I don't know if it was a break or a tie, but get there again. Just a quick, you know, equipment, working hard, um, learning. I think that one of the things that Chris LaPointe and I have tried to do is stay relevant. I mean, when you watch us ski, we definitely bring, you know, things from the past into the future. But learning how to you know, new equipment, change equipment, move to hard shells. I don't know. A lot of people don't know. I was, I was the first one to ever ski in double hard shells in a, in a tournament. Oh, there you um, go. Yeah. Um, just, you know, I think that was a big factor at that time, being able to be out there on hard shells when no one else was and then having both, you know, front and back, both of those. I think that really gave me a, a big, you know, a big edge, um, you know, at that time. Yeah. And what was the score? So that, that one was three at 39. Oh, wow. That's a big score. That's a really yeah, big score. That was a big jump, yeah. Nice. Um, all right. So let's backtrack a few years because I, I kind of wanted to, to cover the records. But you won the Pro Tour in 91. And from what I've been, the little research that I was able to do, because, again, I was three years old in 91, <laughs> um, I saw that you won more than half of the events in the Tour that year. That's a very dominant <laughs> season. I mean, and I'm assuming more than 10 tournaments for sure. So, like, 
tell, tell us that season. What, what happened and what do you think clicked for you to be so dominant? You know, I think it goes back to that sports psychology, you know, just uh, something happened that made me, you know, my belief in my ability and my calmness to just gel and then one victory begets another, you know, if, if you, if something happens at a tip, a tipping point where you just think I can't be beat and then you can't be beat, you know? So I think it really was a mental, you know, just the combination of great equipment, skiing well, and then getting the mental game. I mean, I've been doing this a really long time. I wish I had the mental game when I had the physical, you know, uh, skills that I had then that I have now, you know, I'm just so much more relaxed now. Part of being, you know, for me, part of what happened when I got injured was it's it like, since it was ripped away from me and then like given miraculously given back to me, I'm like, I cannot put pressure on myself now. I'm just like, everything you do is like a miracle. So just treat it that way. And so my, I'm so much more relaxed competing. And I think when I was young, since I was six foot tall and I'd been breaking records and beating people for a really long time that there, I put a lot of personal pressure that I needed to be that superhero skier. And so then that kind of made me, you know, put almost too much pressure on myself to not, you know, not being able to deliver. I mean, I think there would, people would say that I've underachieved. I mean, I've won a lot of events. I think, what is it? 60 podiums. So I've done a lot of things, but maybe I could have done a lot more, but I, I think that my mental game was never as strong as other people's. Oh, okay. And it's interesting how you said that what what can i ask you what year did you get injured so i was injured in 1998 uh so at that time um i was w actually we're talking about world records i was winning the they had a world cup it was the cafe de columbia world cup of course uh i was winning had won most of the events including mumba and was uh basically on my way to winning the first ever time that we had a world cup official world cup all over the world. And I was right on the record. I mean, I would believe it or not, not to, to brag, but I mean, I would run back to back 39 in practice. And, um, at that time, uh, we were filming the women of water sports tour. We were, um, holding two tournaments at one location and filming four events. And I was producing the events, but I was also skiing in them. And I came out in the first round and my ski broke in half and I, I broke my tibia and fibia. And uh, that pretty much ended, um, you know, my end of that season, but certainly was sort of career ending at the top of the mark. You know, I had been in the top five most of my career in the, and I think I was number one, like seven or seven times or whatever. Um, and I never was able to really get back. I think maybe I got back to the top 10 at some point, but, you know, the doctor said if my foot didn't heal, they were going to have to amputate it. And so I feel just the fact that I could ski again, you know, was just really a miracle. Yeah, no, and that's exactly what I wanted to get. The fact that, you know, a lot of athletes after they have a, a very important injury, they feel that pressure, well, first of all, to get back to where they were, but also to then be able to perform again. And it sounds to me that like possibly the seriousness over the injury, but even just the approach that you took afterwards of like, okay, I'm grateful that I get to do this again. Like kind of as a, yeah, an underlying... Yeah, I mean, the doctor, you know, the doctor in the hospital said, you know, we're not sure you're going to ever be able to ski again. And I pretty much grabbed him by the collar and said, you know what? 
I'm going to ski again. And if you can't fix me so I can, you give me a different doctor. <laughs> um, and I was in a hospital for like three weeks and they sent my x-rays all around the United States trying to consult to figure out how they could fix me. Because if they were fixing the average person to walk, it would be one thing, but trying to fix me so, you know, so I could ski again. And what, what ended up happening is that, um, I broke my tib fib, but they didn't realize that I had pulverized an inch and a half of the biggest bone in my body. And they, it took them, it took like six months for the act, the wound, you know, to the, for the, the initial wounds to kind of calm down for them to figure out, Oh, how are we really going to fix this? So they had to do a second bone graft to bridge that gap. And then your body can actually reject them. And if it did, then there would be no way to keep the, you know, keep the foot. So I really felt like I, I, I judged bullet but once it was taken away and given back, then my attitude was, you know what, I don't want my life to, my career to be a tragic story. I want it to be what I want it to be. And so even if I'm never able to be the, the skier I was before, I'm going to ski until I say it's over, not because the world said it was over. And so I think that's why I keep skiing because, uh, and it's difficult to, and I think that's why a lot of professional athletes actually retire when they're in the top of their career, because it's really hard to ride the wave down the other side of the mountain. Yep. But I was in a different position where I was just happy to be riding the wave down the other side of the mountain. Yeah, just being able to ride at all, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And to bring it all full, full circle to, you know, I told the story about the first moment that I ever learned to cross the wakes on edge and realized, like, wow, okay, this is a different game. So when I first... Uh, I was, I was in, on crutches for 11 months and, you know, maybe 15, 16 months into it, my friend, the ski school said, okay, Jen, today's the day you're going to go out and get on the ski. And I'm just weeping. Like I'm terrified to even get up on a water ski. I fall getting up. Like, I'm like, oh, that's it. And so like two weeks later, they said, no, oh, you're gone again. I get up. I'm terrified. I cannot even cross the wakes. You know, I'm just so afraid of hurting myself. And then two weeks later, I try it again and I'm, I'm tiptoeing through the tulips. I, I'm like, it hurts so bad. I'm just never going to do this again. And then, and I had said, well, look, even if I could just water ski, I'll be happy with that. I don't ever have to compete again. I don't ever have to do the slalom course again. I just want to be able to ski, which was probably not really true, but that's what I was telling myself. Right. And then just when I was ready to throw in the towel, I said, you know what, line up with the slalom course and I'm just going to go for it. And as soon as my body remembered crossing the wake on edge just going for it. I literally made 28 off the first try. And I realized it doesn't hurt when I'm crossing the wake, you know, at 28 off doing it the right way. It was always right. tiptoeing the tulips that was killing me. So that, then I was back, you know, I was back, uh, back in the game. Wow. That's, that's a really cool story. It's a really cool story. And how it took that, you know, just sort of like, screw it let's try it let's see let's see if i can still do this and it, it had brought you on the edge like on the edge of the ski uh to be able to run that pass fantastic wow i, I didn't know i didn't know how like and i mean 16 months off it's a lot of months off right not being able to do what we love um but i'm certainly glad that you you know you were able to get back and as you said that you're still doing it that's fantastic yeah, and I think another you know cool part of it is that I just had my ankle replaced uh, two years ago, and I it's like a whole new lease on life. So any of those skiers out there that have bad ankles, I think there's a lot of them. Uh, I had waited a really long time to get this done because I wanted to make sure that the technology was as good as it could be, and you know I hope I'm 
showing people that you can, you know, you can ski with an ankle replacement, you know, uh, I won the Queens cup and, and broke a, you know, broke a record. I think that probably the first person to do that with a, a joint replacement. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I saw, and I saw that and I kind of wanted to talk about, um, the, uh, women of water skiing, uh, something that honestly, I guess because of my young age and not growing up in the United States, I wasn't really aware of. Uh, so, and we eventually we'll loop it back around to Queens Cup, uh, but I want to hear what that project was and what you were involved with. So women had been on the men's, you know, the men and women co-ed tour for 12 years. We first it was just women's slalom, then it was women's jump, uh, and then we'd pretty much always been together competing on this televised tour. And in the mid '90s, there was a lot of pressure to increase the prize money. And we weren't really finding new sponsors. And I just, I just had like an aha moment that the only way they're going to get more prize money for the men is if they cut the women. So, and they were saying, look, there's just not enough interest in women skiing. Maybe we should just cut them loose. And I just kind of had like a wake up call that that was coming down the pike. So the first thing I did was decide, okay, I'm going to show them that more that women do love this sport. So we started a women of water sports, uh, water skiing organization, and we taught like thousands of women to ski, taught them to trailer boats. And so our mission was to get more women in the sport. And then uh, I think it was like two years later, aha, they dropped all the women from the tour. Um, and they really didn't tell, you know, all the all the people, spectators showed up to, to watch the, the ski tour and the women were walking around and they're like, why aren't you skiing? I'm like, they dropped us. We are no more on the women on the pro tour. And um, I don't know if you had read the story, but uh, what we were trying to do was get it exposed to the world that they had dropped women from all professional, you know, other than the masters, we had been dropped from all professional level skiing at that time. So Christy Overton and Susie and I were going to ski against the men because at that time there was a rule that if you, there was like an equivalent. So if you had done certain performance at 34, it qualified you for open at 36, I guess, something like that. And so we were officially qualified. So I said, look, if you're not going to have women on the tour, we're going to ski against the men until you put us back. And, and it, it was mostly because I wanted the water ski public, the water ski magazine, to know that they had dropped the women from the tour. Like this is a co-ed sport, you know, right. it's a family sport where everybody is together. I just couldn't believe that they had dropped us. Um, so sorry, so sorry to interrupt you, but like you obviously the exposure, well, first of all, great intuition, I guess, I mean, set of a sad uh, future event, but it was a great intuition two years prior that possibly you guys were going to be the ones to be cut. Uh, and I think, you know, like teaching women how to ski and like all that you guys did with that organization is even without a pro tour is already great in and of itself. But were you in the back of your mind, were you thinking like we can create a women spectator pool that would be a, like that would be missing a pro tour if it was to be canceled? Was that part of the rationale? Like, yeah, I mean, it was to get show the sport that more that women really do love water skiing as you know, it's, it's obviously not as the same as the number of men, but I just wanted to get more, if there were more women out there, maybe they would show that would show the people who are producing the events that we women needed to be there. Um, and then the second thing I did was, well, so I tried to get these guys to ski on the tour. They all chickened out. So I actually was the first woman to ever ski on the men's pro tour at 36 miles an hour. Uh, I, I did it basically just to, 
for as a media stunt. Like I just wanted the 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 inner, you know, the press and Water Ski Magazine, you know, who ran the tour at the time had not put the word out that water women's water skiing was dropped because they didn't think they I think they felt that was probably not a good PR stunt. Yeah, exactly. So skiing against the men was really just to get that, you know, get the PR rolling. And because I had already started a women's organization, we were ready to do our first ever women's professional ski tournament in that fall. Uh, so we didn't really miss a whole season because we had already been somewhat organized. And the first event we did was with boat racing. So it was on at Crane's Roost in Orlando. Uh, we the, Basically, the concept uh, for the women's tour one is that no sponsor was ever going to give us a $250,000 check, but maybe I could get a small check from a lot of sponsors. Right. Um, and so I also felt that water skiing needs to be delivered uh, as a as an entertainment vehicle. So the women's water ski show should be like two hours, get in, get out, entertain the crowd, and that we could never pay to build a crowd, but we could probably entertain the heck out of people there to watch a boat race we did a tournament with the bass fishermen, oh, with all the bass fishermen that came and and uh, were at a big competition. We went to another several other fairs and festivals. So we ended up having you know three to six thousand people on the beach that we didn't pay for because we were entertainment for someone else's event. So that was one strategy of getting people on the beach. And then the second was we need to be on television, and then the prize money will come. Uh, so what we did first was raise the money to put ourselves on television. Um, and the, so our first event was women water skiing with, with boating. Wow. And, and that boats, was, maybe. and that was televised. Yeah, it was televised. So we were, uh, we, we bought an airtime uh, in, in Florida and then the way sports networking syndicating goes, our show got traded all around the country. So even though we promised our sponsors that our television show would be on Florida, we ended up being nationwide because other places, you know, wanted to play our show. So that was really cool because I went to the sponsors and promised them 10,000 households and gave them, you know, 40. Uh, and that kind of got us on our way. And the strategy really was uh, for women of water sports was to build teams. So we, we got Team Mastercraft against Team Malibu against Team Overton and Team Nautique. We, it was the first time that all the sponsors came to the same party. And I think maybe they were just giving us the sympathy check, but because we could, um, we could uh, put all of those that money together. We could uh, build something from that, and we couldn't afford prize money. So what we did was, okay, girls, go get sponsorship agreements with all your sponsors, so that if you're on television, they pay you five hundred bucks, a thousand bucks every time you're on TV. So even though we're not going to be able to pay you prize money, we're going to make sure you're on every single athlete that shows up at the event is going to be on TV like three or four times. So then you could go turn in your sponsorship bonuses that you were on TV five times and get paid that way. So we did that so much that they finally the sponsors cut those kind of t uh, incentive agreements out of contracts because we were just like busting their budget, <laughs> giving all these women all this television coverage. Uh, so it is a really neat, unique format. Basically, we had one slalom skier, one tricker, one jumper and one overall skier on each team. The overall skier was a wild card. So the slalom skiers would all get out if the first, you know, if the person won, it was four, three, three, 
three, two, one. Uh, the trickers went out, same thing. We wanted the scoring system to be so close that you never knew which team was going to win until the end of the tournament. And then the, what, the team could decide when they wanted their wild card overall skier to go. So if our overall skier was a great jumper, we might send her out to try to win jump or what, but she could only ski one time. And then we eventually added a wakeboarder to the team as well. And that was our, our, our format and it worked really well for us. And it allowed us to, you know, get, get us, uh, four different sponsors rather than try to get one sponsor to, you know, pay for the whole thing. Wow. It's, it's it was very strategic how we did it. So in the end, we did um, we did five years and 50 television shows on women's water sports. So then the next piece of it was uh, I had some of the big sponsors that I had talked to, like Miller Brewing Company. You know, if you said you were coming in as a women's water skiing show, they were not interested. But as soon as I, I said, well, we could deliver all women's water sports, they were interested. So mm-hmm. we were about to... Uh, on board other women's water sports as part of the show. So that was our, our, our final strategy. And then um, one of the other things that we wanted to do, so the, the, the show on the beach was like two hours, super quick. And then what we filmed these television shows, I felt that we needed to bridge the gap between what the average boater does out on the water. So we would go do fun things. So we would film the show and we would cut away from the show and we would do cool things. So one of the really fun things that we did was ski under the Golden Gate Bridge. And we took Regina Jayquest at 13 years old water skiing under the Golden Gate Bridge as part of the television show. No Um, way. Yeah. So that is how I first met her. We were hunting for women skiers. So we, she was competing on one of the teams at the time. And then we would literally make up like, okay, we're in San Francisco. What can we do? Uh, we went uh, out in the ocean and, and surfed uh, in New York. We went; they went skiing around the the Statue of Liberty. So the girls would always go do some like recreational boating thing as part of our show. So it was both competition and like just fun, cool things you could do on the water. Wow, that's that's unbelievable story. And I mean, I can only imagine how much that experience must have shaped Regina, you know, like a 13-year-old that gets to hang out with, you know, the best skiers in the world who she's now seeing on TV. Wow, what a a story. What a story. And I must say, like, as you know, I organize a pro event, and there's been a a bit of a resurgence in in cash prize tournaments uh, in the last two or three years. And let's just say I took a lot of notes. (laughs) So Uh um, what a... Speaking of that, I would like to hear your opinion on women's slalom nowadays, right? So where do you think the sport is currently, maybe compared to when you were competitive or um, in general? What do you think about women's slalom in 2020? Okay, well, I think in slalom in general, when I, you know, I'm judging or watching, I think everybody's cheating. What I say that is because what they're doing looks so much easier than what we used to do. And I think that uh, speed control has changed it. Uh, When we went from manual to perfect pass to GPS. And I think that the young people have learned how to ski light on the boat. But when we were learning, you needed to be heavy on the boat. That's why, you know, Chris LaPointe at six foot four, you know, 220, myself at six foot, like we were the athletes of the time because leveraging against the boat and being heavy on the boat was how we did it. Um, And so it's been difficult to learn how to be light on the boat. So it's and the athletes have gone to much lighter, uh, smaller, 
you know, who I, I mean, in my time, you would have never dreamed someone Regina side could be a world record holder just based on her size or, you know, but I think the younger skiers have learned how to ski on speed control. So they, their styles have adapted to be different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the whole sport has changed as far as what it takes to be good. Yeah. Uh, and what they're doing to me looks easier, looks easier on the body. And I certainly aspire to do what they're doing <laughs> and not what we used to do. I mean, it's hard when you, you learned an old fashioned way to, to morph. Um, but I think that's part of how Chris, the point and I have stayed relevant is that we're like not in love with our style and say, okay, we're going to bring our style forward. We're, we're like, okay, how do we change to be more relevant to what, what is required today? Right, right. Yeah, no, it, and it's an interesting because, you know, like obviously you don't have, I think the argument could be made that you don't have to be a great, great skier to be a great coach. Certainly you have to have the knowledge and if you have the experience, it helps. Now, you and Chris have this almost like, you know, struggle of like, this is how we ski and this is how we learned how to ski. We know that the new way is this. Like, do, do you often find yourself like maybe, you know, you're coaching someone at, at La Pointe Ski Park and you're thinking the way you feel and then go, oh, no, hold on. It should be feeling this way. You see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's a struggle. It is a struggle to, um, you know, to stay relevant even in our, you know, our coaching. But we work at it. You know, we work at it and watch, you know, watch skiers, listen to other skiers. And I think that we are still relevant because we're really good coaches and we're, you know, we can see things. And uh, so I think if you can see it, you can explain it, even if you can't do it. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And I mean, as you recall, I was there a couple of months ago for one afternoon and just hearing you increase coach. That became very clear to me for sure. Um, But I can also see how like, you know, sometimes you may. You might try to coach someone and go, oh, it should feel this way. And like, no, that's how I, I feel. That's not how it should feel, right? And, or some, some things like that, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, we, you know, being tall was the thing, at, you know, at the time. I mean, my one of my big uh, competitors was Camille Duval, who was also a six-foot, you know, six-foot woman. Uh, Tony Neville was, you know, 5'10". Susie Graham was 5'10". Like, all the top athletes in, in water skiing, women's slalom were tall, at the time, Mike Shaylander, I mean, think of all the really big guys. Oh, yeah. You know, they would they would just be broken to pieces today trying to do that kind of skiing on the current, you know, speed control. Yeah, no, for so, sure. And I, and I noticed it because obviously I'm, I'm a water ski fan. So, you know, I, I know a little bit of my history. But especially growing up, like I became, I started st- skiing the course right at that switch between manual driving and perfect pass. And then I saw the perfect pass zero off transition. And the further we went along, the more the bodies started to shrink and become lighter and lighter and lighter. And for some of us, I mean, I'll I'll include myself, uh, who has a genetic profile that doesn't make it easy to lose weight. uh, It's been a challenge, you know. So uh, honestly, I do envy those pictures when I see Chris with like a humongous shoulders and biceps, you know, in the 80s. I'm like, oh, that would have been my time. (laughs) Yeah, and I, I mean, I look at how compressed the skiers are now, like how much their knees are bent. I mean, this perfect example was watching uh, the World Championships and, and um, watching uh, Joel ski and how compressed he was. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you would have gotten killed if you tried to ski like that. I mean, it was fantastic skiing, but yep. like you just that is just not how we would have done it back then. And you would have just got crushed if you, you know, you were that compressed. Um, Different and I think boats. one of the hard 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the hard things now as an older person, you just get your legs get stiffer and stiffer and it's harder to ski so low, you know, so low to the water as a lot of the athletes do today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I can see that for sure. And obviously the weights I think are not. Lefties, I'm just going to lefties. It's real, you know, but I don't know why I ended up being a left foot forward skier, but my power leg is in the back. And with perfect pass and with current type of skiing, trying to be like invisible to the boat, it's very beneficial to have your be balanced. And so having all your weight and controlling everything from your back back leg is just not really good. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's not it's not helpful. Thank God my daughter Taylor was a righty. Well, have you considered maybe switching to right foot forward now? You know, I, I actually tried it after I got injured, but uh, nah, didn't go anywhere with that. Yeah, no, that's that's a humongous, humongous change. I mean, some people do change, and it's like, I hats off to them that they can switch over. Yeah, no, not for me. I, I tried it. It's, it's virtually impossible. The people that manage to run some boo, even some buoys with the other foot forward are few and far in between. So let, let's chat a little bit about La Pointe Ski Park. So how long have you guys been there? How long, you know? Give me a bit of the background. Yeah. So we've, you know, lived in Orlando. We used to, I had a, a ski school called O-Town Water Sports, was like a commercial location and typically just skied on lakes where other boaters could go in circles and stuff. So what was really interesting when the real estate market crashed, you know, somebody had owned this ski ditch, for lack of a better word. It's basically a retention pond. It probably been there for 30 or 40 years, just sitting there waiting for somebody to ski on it. Uh, and the guy was, you know, who owned it was trying to make money. So he looking for highest and best use, which was water skiing. And we looked over the fence and we're like, yeah, it's going to be too small. And so we broke the gate and put a boat in, went up and down once and went, oh, yeah, okay, maybe. So then we decided to do, I said, well, let's do a buy it before you, you know, try it before you buy it. Let's do a lease option to buy this thing and see if we can ski on it because we're pretty much going to have to put the course on it to try to figure it out. And you right. have to get the course, you know, our lake isn't that long. So you, it has a big dog leg in it. So you needed to get the course like in the perfect angle to, to be able to utilize the course. It's a eight buoy overlap course. Mm -hmm. And so the very first day we went out to ski, I mean, literally went down and back and said, okay, we'll take it. <laughs> no so way. It, it, it skied so good. And we have wind protection uh, from like three different directions. It's all wooded, you know. So probably the best wind protection in Orlando, great conditions all the time. And so it was just a blessing that we, that we got turned on to this lake. We've owned it about six years. So we, you know, we really didn't want to get back into um, – the ski school business full time, you know, we, we sell real estate for our real jobs uh, and lots of other projects. So we wanted to allow other people to ski there. So we made it into a ski club so people can be a member, get a key and, you know, come out and ski. That's great. That's great. Um, the, uh, obviously, I, I saw something when I came two months ago uh, and I've been told that it was uh, the KLP shed. And I've been told <laughs> that in there, there was something going on, namely the production of a new ski. So I'll be curious to hear what this ski is all about. I mean, we've seen pictures online. I saw a website. Yeah, I mean, Chris has been building skis like forever. As I told you back in the back in the early days, I was skiing for Mastercraft skis and he was building our skis and he built Andy Mapple's skis you know, for O'Brien for years and years. And then we were kind of behind the scenes with HO for a long time, testing product and, you know, kind of helping out his, his brother uh, unofficially behind the scenes. And then um, Andy Mapple asked him to, you know, when his ski products started to take off, you know, to come in and do 
uh, some design work. So Chris was helping him with the T3, um, you know, and then we were just kind of, you know, after Andy passed, so it was broke all of our hearts and it was very difficult, but we personally felt like we needed to carry that banner on, you know, and, and make it his legacy and continue to help it fund his family and stuff. And then, you know, after a couple of years, it was just getting harder and harder. Radar was really not into it. I think they felt that Maple Skis was sort of, you know, eating some of their own customers and stuff. So since it was so difficult, it, it, someone said, you know, okay, why are you spending so much time, you know, trying to carry this banner? Maybe you should just go back to building your own skis. So uh, he's been working on it now for about a year, and they'll be, be handmade, LaPointe skis, made at LaPointe Ski Park in his trailer. Yeah. Um, doesn't want to be, a, you know, the biggest brand in sports. He just wants to, you know, for fun, build, you know, a cool ski that a lot of people will like. The idea behind the design, we have been trying to uh, build a ski that likes zero off. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, I think we really got it. Nice. I can't tell you. I have to shoot you if I told you all the things we did. But, you know, we we were really trying to build a ski for zero off and to help old school people who ride the back foot be able to be more balanced when skiing, which is going to reduce the loads and make it easier. It's super fast, really turns left and right, amazingly easy, and it's so much easier to ride. The, the, the loads on your body are greatly reduced. Interesting. Yeah, I think we got it. That's cool. That's cool. And it's called La Pointe. La Pointe Skis. So there's a website called LaPointeSkis.com. People can order them there. It'll be slow production. You know, he's going to be building all of them himself. But the cool part about the concept is that he hand builds it for you. He flex measures it for you. He can set up the fin for you. You know, it's it's a custom built product for you. They're kind of like race cars, uh, you know. They may not look as perfect as something coming out of a big manufacturer, but they're going to be literally handmade for each individual skier. Yeah, and I can't you know, think. You know, we've been doing everything in the sport for so long. It, we're, we, if we're doing anything at this point, it's because it, we're just doing it for fun. Yeah, no, I understand it. And I mean, to me, it always seemed like I've never, the few times that I met Chris, he was always holding some kind of caliper, bondo, a ski that he needed to adjust. So I can see why... You know, he's been driven by his passion, and, and it's fantastic. I mean, you might want to tell him that I, I love to have him in front of a mic at some point. Oh, yeah. That'd be great <laughs> to have him, you know, have him tell what he, you know, what his concepts are uh, in manufacturing and building ski. And love to. His story is longer than mine. Yeah, I love to pick his brain on that. Um, well, look, the other thing that I wanted to talk to you about is a project that I know you've been working on for a few years, uh, and I'm, I'm personally very excited so I'd love to, for you to have the space to, to share what you've been working on. Okay, so, uh, you know, I, what I realized, I like to tell this story, that my dad learned how to snow ski at like 40 years old, and he went down a NASTAR snow ski racing hill, so they set up these courses that people can go get a score, yep. and he got a poster in the mail that said that he was in the top 10 in the state of West Virginia for men snow skiers, you know, over whatever age it was, 40, 50, and he decided, wow, I'm I must be really good at this. So he bought all new equipment, joined a club, uh, and then proceeded to snow ski for 15 years all around the United States. And I'm like, wow, we need that. We need some way to give the average water skier a measurement of how good he is so that so basically NASTAR snow ski racing for water skiing 
So 25 years ago, I tried to build like this thing for your boat that everybody could have and measure their skills, but that wasn't going to work. And then I just realized like two years ago that the phone was the 21st century version of virtual water skiing. I even called it that 25 years ago. I've had the website for virtual water skiing since like before you were born, probably had it a really long time because I just I just thought that was something that needed to be built. So I built up a, a, what we have right now is a beta in the app store for iOS only. And you can be filmed water skiing. It digitizes your performance and it gives you a world rank. But we're about to build some other cool stuff. And I think it's really important right now when all sporting events are being canceled, that water skiing is going to be able to go on and be the first sport to deliver virtual sports. What we're building right now is the way a, a way to have a competition, a, a real event where everybody would be turning in their scores virtually. Uh, we are going to be building team play so that you can make a team of all your favorite fr skiers, friends. You can compete against other teams. You could play match play so you could step up to the dock with your gear, push a button and find somebody else getting ready to water ski in real time. We're going to have a way to compete. So one thing I, I want people to understand, I'm not really trying to reinvent what we do. I'm trying to build the bridge between what everyone else does and what we do. So mm -hmm. we don't have a different scoring system than what we're used to. Um, you're going to be able to get, um, basically right now, if the wider and earlier are, the more points that you score. But we're also going to have a handicap mode. So if you do have a leaderboard of all your friends that you can equalize the playing for field. And if people, you know, if you're improving, you're, you're scoring more points for the team. Uh, match play. And then one of the other pieces is to have um, access to professional level coaching in real time. So you'd hit a button on the phone. It would ping all the top elite athletes and somebody would pick up and, and give you a five minute video instruction section session, almost like the Uber of sports. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, we want I think that water skiing by itself is 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 not that powerful. But if we could take the concept of virtual sports to all the niche and outdoor lifestyle sports, it's a pretty big market. And we could, you know, we could really do some things if we have 142 million niche and outdoor lifestyle sports athletes all competing in this app. And that's what I call it, compete. So right now it's a beta in the app store called um, Virtual Water Skiing, but we'll, we'll be changing the brand over to compete as we bring on other sports. It'll be compete water skiing. And, um, you know, we've had some discussions with the uh, IWSF about making an official world water ski championship that all the scores just came in virtually this summer, especially if all the events are canceled. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly a difficult time right now, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. But I think it, and it's just like a perfect time to have this product that I was already thinking of. But it could save the day for all of us when we're all training like crazy and we can't compete because all the events have been canceled. You know, doing virtual com competition is at least a somewhat of a substitute. And it's going to just make all new ways of playing and competing. Oh, no, for sure. For sure. I think I've always said that one of the great things about our sport is that the scores are fairly, particularly slalom and jump, are fairly objective, right? You can measure them with a stick pretty much. So that's, yeah. I think, a, for those of us that get exposed to the slalom ski, to the slalom course, that's what kind of keeps us in oftentimes, right? Like the fact that next time you can go and gauge how well you did right away. Something that a lot, a lot of other sports don't have that advantage, right? So the more ways in which you can gauge if you're performing, and certainly once there's performance, there could be competition. I think that's a, that's a fantastic idea. And obviously on the show notes, I'll leave links to the, um, to the iOS app and, and the website. 
Yeah. And since I know this is like a super, you know, advanced crowd that's probably listening to this, like some of the cool stuff that we're going to do is use AI to score water skiing, which is going to allow us to score trick skiing, going to allow us to score jumping. Uh, It's going to allow the app to actually get smart enough to coach. We're going to have a skier's locker room, you know, log in there where you could put which ski, what your flex numbers are, what your fin numbers are. And you're going to be able to see that you just moved your fin and now you're accelerating 20% slower from your offside to your onside. Like all of this is all possible. Um, we'll be putting the, not only using AI, but also using the Apple watch on, on a ski for the data, the advanced motion data tracking. So, you know, for the mass public, we're trying to make cool ways to compete, but for our hardcore group, there's just so much we can do with, you know, all this advanced motion, um, data tracking. And, you know, to me, the, even though I'm part, as you would say, of the more advanced group, I'm, more, I'm very excited about the first part because one of the reasons why I started this podcast is to attract people into the sport. Or one of the things that has been happening a lot is that people find out about the Water Ski Podcast and say, oh, yeah, I used to ski 10 years ago. I stumbled upon your podcast, made me stoked, and now I'm skiing again, right? So that's the, the, that's the kind of population I started the podcast for. And I'm certainly glad that, you know, like you're thinking of this as a bridge between what a lot of people are doing on the water and what more advanced or even just someone that got to ski a course one time is doing now. Right. So I, I think it's a brilliant concept. And I'm glad you know, as as you, you being a professional athlete and me being one and a lot of professionals listening to this, like the best way to grow the sport is that more people are interested in who we are and what we do. So this bridge, if this bridge is built and we have 30,000, a hundred thousand water sports people playing this app, we can expose ourselves to other athletes and other sports. If if all sports are involved in this thing. Um, but what an audience we might have for events. And I believe that this pro this product can be the funding tool that we need to have professional events in the app and also the funding tool to put it back on television. Cause as you know, as I said, I think that the most important thing is that people aspire to be us, but if they don't know we exist. So two things, I think this project can to do both. It can build the base and showcase the, the top so that we can build it from both directions. And that's really what's been missing. You know, it's interesting cause I'm now like, through this interview and knowing your your story a bit more, I now see some of the things that you're trying to achieve with this with this new project, uh, and I see a lot of resemblances, right? Like the fact that you, you like to have teams into this compete app, just as those teams you were using during the um, the Wow Tour and having teams compete against each other. Uh, it's it's very fascinating, actually. I think if I think we can all admit probably the funnest things that we've ever done in the sport is when we were on the team, whether we were on our collegiate team or we had USA versus the world. Now, as a slalom specialist, I haven't had many opportunities to be on a team, but the, the but wild tour was so fun. And a lot of the girls, you know, have come up to me and just talked about like it was the funnest time they've ever had because they had to work together. It just changes things, you know, that when you have to work together with people and you're not solely focused on you and how you're doing, it, it just changes everything. So I think that's a bit gonna be a big part of it and making this really fun for all of us even, um, but for other people too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, I think maybe the, the best example of team skiing nowadays is collegiate water skiing for those that get a chance to do it. And 
certainly the memories I have from there of some of the successes we had or just even the the lifestyle and the way in which you ski when you're part of a team and the team has priority are, are the best memories I have in water skiing. I mean, hands down. Yeah, and if we if we combine with other sports, I see a day that there are water sports teams. So there's a team of professional wakeboarder, professional water skier, wake surfer, and you know maybe a real surfer on the same team competing against other teams. And maybe that is exciting enough that major networks want to cover that type of competition and water skiing gets to go for the ride. So a team of multiple sports. Yeah. So it's all since it's all being collected virtually, any combination of sports can be made. And I think the market will kind of tell us that. Um, and then one of the other cool things is that in fantasy team play, you, you know, you study the computer and, you know, watch the stats on the computer. But we're building a way where you can actually be on your own fantasy team. Uh, so the way we're envisioning is that you might pick three, you know, five professional athletes to be on your fantasy team. Um, and you'll pick your five best friends who are just average water skiers and all of your scores count together against other people's fantasy teams. No way. So you're, you're really on your own fantasy team. Yeah. That's I think that's cool. not very novel. And if, you know, I think if we can bring that to our sport, but a lot of sports, that's going to be a, something that's, uh, moves the market. Sure. No. And as I said, we'll put a lot of information on the episode notes for people to check out links and download the app uh, easily. Yeah. One, one final thing I wanted to say about it is that, you know, I want this to grow the sport for everybody. And I want the professional athletes to have, a, you know, a big part of this. So as we, you know, I've had a little bit of a discussion about um, building ways for the ambassadors and the pro athletes to get a revenue share for participating, promoting, being part of it, being the coaches. So there's going to be an, a, you know, an opportunity for the athletes to financially benefit from the success of the whole project. Yeah, really, really a very holistic approach into the development of this project. I really like it. Look, Jennifer, to conclude, uh, just a little bit of a final question that I wanted to ask you is, I, I personally believe, uh, particularly last season, there was indication that, uh, particularly women's slalom, we're seeing a lot of more competition at the high level and at pro, pro tournaments. Uh, sadly, pro tournaments for women are not as many as for men. Uh, and I've been very public in, in saying that that should change and trying to convince organizers to put means up. But um, apart from that, from a second, I'd be curious to hear from your experience as a pro athlete and a world record holder and now a coach, what are some of the suggestions that you would give to some teenage girl who's skiing very well and wants to continue and become really competitive? Something that comes to mind. Um. You know, I, th I, I still go back to all of what I've said is that we've got to grow the pie and then there's room, you know, if, if, if more people are interested and more women are interested that, that those athletes get to be elevated because there's just more interest in the sport. There's more opportunities to get prize money for women. Uh, we're, we're basically all just fighting over the same stuff all the time from year after year it, we haven't grown anything so that we are, we, we've got to grow the pie for there to be more, you know, more prize money, more events for, for women. And we also have to get exposure so that people aspire to, to do what we do. Okay. I don't yeah. know if that answered your question, but no, I, I think, still think 
I, th I mean, certainly that's, that's a prime motivator, right? So, like, I'm thinking of your story. Like, if there wasn't a pro tour starting and, you know, uh, the possibility of now going to Worlds, you might have not left basketball as soon as you did, right? But you saw opportunity. You saw opportunities to compete, and that motivated you to make a, a very important decision. So I certainly agree uh, that those opportunities need to be there for young girls to continue and practice and compete. Um, but for those who are still, you know, in that mode, even just some practical advice that you would have, something that, that helped you, or maybe something that you see your students, that, that you do with your students that might help them. I just think that, you, that, that we need to realize that we are, in, this is a family sport and we are an integral part of it. I mean, I don't know how many times you go to ski events and there's all men. It's just not that much fun. Um, so I think that we belong together and you belong there, even though it's, I don't know whether it's 80% men and 20% women. And it's always, and that was part of the theory behind women of water sports is that we could get the women out of the shadows because they could go to a place and have, you know, 50, 60 women in one place, which kind of encourages them. Cause usually they're, they're shy about how they look or what they look like in a bathing suit or that their skill level isn't as good. So even going back to some of what we were doing then, which is having, um, you know, all women days at your lake. Um, ha I know April Coble has women, you know, women's week and, uh, at her ski school, like the more times that we can invite as many women to the table and give them a nice friendly environment, the better. And that's why the Queens cup I think is brilliant is because it's a, not only are we have the elite senior women there, but we, we let all the women, anybody, somebody's their first tournament could come to this event and it's fun for them to see that the sport can be about women as well. And it's just so empowering to be, you know, to be in an event where it's like 50 women and, and the men are, you know, working the event to help us, but it's really showcase, showcasing us. So I think each of us as women who have a club or a coach, the more things we can do to encourage women and have all women of things uh, will help. Fantastic. Wow. Thank you so much. Jen, this was unbelievable. Uh, any shout outs, any final words that you want to give before we, we disconnect? Oh, well, I didn't say thank you to KLP. I mean, he is just an awesome person and has, you know, literally coached me since I was 23 years old, built all my skis, very patient with me. Uh, we, you know, changed my equipment 472 billion times trying <laughs> to get me back to the level and being such a positive coach who, you know, believes in me more, more than me usually. Uh, and my daughter, who's, you know, uh, love of my life lives in london doesn't get to ski anymore somebody over in england needs to drag her out and make her ski come and, on taylor uh, you gotta ski more yeah you're breaking your mommy's heart uh just you know i love the sport i just thank all you know sponsors mastercraft supported me for you know forever um you know every all the judges and officials like i mean there's a lot of people that do a lot of stuff behind the scenes uh, just like people didn't know my story, there's like a million stories of people that are doing things behind the scenes, above and beyond, you know, that are selfless. And, you know, I just want to say thank you to all those people that, you know, make the sport what it is, even if we don't ever say it and we never really see them. They're yeah, out there. And that's that's also part of why I did this, to give voices to those stories. I mean, obviously, you know, interviewing interviewing all of famers like yourself and world champions is, is obviously in, uh uh, highly requested and, and fun for me too. Uh, but I do plan and, and strive to give 
the whole story as much as I can. So, you know, someone who's been a judge for 30 years and, and maybe quit skiing 20 years ago, but he's still allowing tournaments to happen. I mean, that person, that person's story needs to be out. So yeah, we can learn from, you know, we can learn from all of what everyone else has already tried and already done. And I really thank you. You're doing a fantastic job. I hope that this, uh, you know, this, what you're doing, it was really, really successful. And, you know, you're doing your, your part to change the world. Jennifer, I don't know that we could have ended on a better note. Thank you so much. Thank you. Do 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 do